happening now. We'd like to welcome our viewers from across North America and around the world. This is the EdTech Situation Room, episode 134 for May the 15th, 2019. My name is Wes Fryer, and I am coming to you live from Oklahoma City, even though I'm wearing my University of North Texas shirt where I got to be an adjunct instructor a number of years ago. Uh, and I am excited, as always, to be joined by Dr. Jason Neifer, Coming to us from the road. Jason, where are you tuning in via hotel Wi-Fi tonight? I am in lovely Butte, Montana, the richest hill on earth, as it's known as, the first capital of territorial, or one of the first capitals of territorial Montana, and where uh, the Copper Barons lived. And I've been doing site visits for my program, the Montana Digital Academy, in southwestern Montana uh, today and tomorrow, and then back to lovely Missoula, Montana, where I work at the Montana Digital Academy, the state virtual school located on the fabulous University of Montana campus. And we are are probably days away from moving into our brand new offices at the Phyllis J. Washington College of Education and Human Sciences on the UM campus. And they just this week had an unveiling of a new wing on that building that includes a beautiful new auditorium, an office suite for our counselor education department, and on the end cap of the new wing, the new offices, the Montana Digital Academy. So we're really excited to move into those offices. It happens to include a media studio, which uh, will have a nice uh, green screen and place to record things like podcasts. So I'm hoping once or twice to uh, stay after at work and join the podcast from the fabulous University of Montana campus. But we're not here tonight to talk about me. We're not here to talk about Wes. We're here to talk about ed tech. And so we're going to jump in and talk about some stories. If you're interested in the links that are sourcing our discussion topics for the evening, you can go to our website, edtechsr.com. And you can also download copies of uh, the podcast itself. We'll talk a about that a little bit at the end of the podcast. But Wes, where would you like to start this week? Oh, goodness. Um I don't know. Let's, let's start with a positive story. So I don't think we, we did a shout out to this one last time. Maybe we did. Um, but I don't know that I put the, did we talk about, uh, Ermilla's story, the, the story of the illiterate mom with the Google lens? Um, no, um, although the Google lens stuff is pretty great. So yeah, let's start there. Yeah. So I have still not watched the entire Google IO keynote. Um, I, uh, encourage some, you know, dirty looks for my family as I say, let's watch more of Google IO. Although my 18 year old daughter watched quite a bit of it or watched a bit of it with me and she was very impressed, right? About the, the demo, uh, especially I think they were doing, um, you know, uh, the Google Assistant stuff. So, uh, this video is called Armilla's Story, U-R-M-I-L-A. Um, and it was shared during the keynote and it is really a touching, you know, less than two minute video that basically shows the power of, um, of, uh, text recognition technologies. And so being able to hold your phone up to not only signs, but also, um, recipes or, you know, food ingredients and a child's report card. And so there's a mother in India, I think, who is, um, you know, basically sharing her story and the ways in which she's able to, um, you know, gain access to literacy. And it's so amazing because not only does it read the text, it also highlights the words as you, um, are, are being read to. And the fact that this is, is able to occur in different languages, you know, and it's sort of like the Star Trek, uh, universal communicator we're getting closer to where, you know, you talk in, in Urdu or Swahili and, you know, I understand English. 
pretty amazing. So if anybody out there is actually going to be sharing a professional development session with teachers, you're going to be touching on new technologies, um, you know, Google technologies. This is one of those really uh, feel good videos. And I think it also basically represented a lot of Google's message at IO, which was that Yes, there are privacy concerns. Yes, we're collecting data, but look at all the incredibly powerful things that we can do with those uh, pieces of data and the way in which we are able to make your life better. And that was Sundar Pichai's overall, can I borrow your headphones? That was Sundar Pichai's overall theme um, was that he was making, uh, they are making Google more helpful and that's their goal. You still there? Hello, Jason, can you hear me? You just popped back on. The audio was off there for a moment. What's the last thing you said? <laughs> Sundar Pichai. Sundar yeah, my wife's. Uh, just that Sundar Pichai said they're making Google uh, more helpful. My family did just come home, and I have not prioritized my device. So perhaps <laughs> the Google Wi-Fi quality of service needs to enter in. How long did I cut out for? Uh, about uh, maybe 10 seconds. Okay. So I would jump in and say that that, and I think we talked about this a little bit last week. That this was there was a an app called WordLens, which was purchased by Google, which kind of started this process. And I used to like to show off WordLens as a good example of augmented reality, and also this notion of of I think we we vastly underestimate sometimes about how important the the cell phone res- revolution is to a lot of tasks that were actually pretty intimidating for people for the years and decades before that. And I like to talk a lot about uh, my my first uh, traveling internationally, I, I now uh, take almost a, a big trip a year with my wife. We prioritize travel. It's very important to us as as kind of human beings and, and, and uh, uh, members of the human race to get out and see other cultures and experience other cultures. But I never took a, a language class in high school. I regret that dramatically in, in, in 2019 because I wish to be bilingual or trilingual. And unfortunately, my adult brain has not been as, as adaptive to learning languages as I had hoped, although I like to practice practice Spanish phrases with my wife who is fluent in, in, in speaking Spanish. But it's really, you know, takes down the intimidation of being in another country. A lot if you can take signs or menus or interpretive information on historical markers and translate that instantly and automatically. And now that phones um, uh, have international plans and you can have a, a technology with you that auto translates anywhere you go. I think that's a pretty impressive thing. And um, it's easy. And in fact, one of the things we might get to a couple of times tonight is that obviously we, we have some work to do in regards to balancing out what technology does in our world and figuring out ways it can productively evolve humans um, and not be used uh, to, to, to drive us apart or to create wedges within societies. But this technology, I think, is an extraordinary step forward in bringing humans closer together. And I love it. It's so, so amazing. It's such an, uh, an amazing um, uh, demonstration to show, too, that something so simple can be so powerful in the way that it, uh, you know, transforms things physical in the physical world for you right in front of your eyes. And one of my favorite metaphors uh, when it comes to using technology is, is a bridge. Um, I think that we have opportunities to act as bridges, working with teachers and working with students when it comes to technologies. And this specific 
technology, the, the Google Lens technology, is an example of that kind of a bridge, too, where it's taking traditional literacy, traditional written text, but it's bringing it, you know, via technology into into audio space, and it's opening up doors that weren't there otherwise. So, yeah, beautiful, beautiful story, important technology, and, you know, I think it's important for folks, and we've probably said this on the show before, I mean, you know, I'm definitely not, and I don't think Jason is either, you know, a, an advocate for technology in all cases and an advocate for technology for technology's sake, right? We're not technophiles, but being able to use technology in powerful ways, especially in transformative ways, is incredibly exciting, and it's very empowering. And so we we don't need to lose sight of that here on the show, and I'm, I know we'll talk about, you know, um, Brexit, Cambridge Analytica, upcoming elections right now in, in Europe, you know, the, the weaponization of social media by, by bad actors for malicious purposes. There's all this stuff, you know, hitting the news. But in the midst of all that, we need to remember that, yes, these are powerful tools. Therefore, they can be used for good and for ill. We wouldn't be having, actually, these stories of, of bad use uh, probably if these things weren't so powerful and we need to remember, you know, those, those good stories as well. So Jason, I think that you're ready to talk about this. I heard a rumor that there's a new smartphone, you know, in your, 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 uh, your toolkit. So can you tell us a little bit about that and how has that experience been so far? Sure. So I would say that it's been a while since I purchased a brand new, recently released cell phone. I've been using phones that are a year too old for, well, at least Four years now, in part because um, you know, great premium Android phones oftentimes are much cheaper a year or two after they're released. And um, I had a, a problem uh, a couple weeks back with a first-generation uh, Google Pixel phone that I picked up because it talks with some of the uh, sensors that I wear in my body for medical purposes, and um, and had some trouble with Google. And the good folks at T-Mobile, which uh, I can't speak enough about how great of experience I've had with. T-Mobile is a customer now for almost two years. Um, they announced that they were uh, taking trade-ins on on several telephones, including a first-generation Pixel for $400, which happens to be the price of the Pixel 3a, which is a phone we talked about last week. It was announced at Google I.O., and it's kind of Google's uh, way of offering some options for people that don't want the $1,000 flagship cell phone. And so it took about an hour at the T-Mobile store. Part of it was that they had to run across town and grab one from the other T-Mobile store because they had been selling pretty well in lovely Missoula, Montana. And um, I, there's been a lot of interesting press about the Pixel 3a, um, uh, not all of it positive. There's been a lot of great reviews that talk about how the Pixel 3a is, I guess for lack of a better way of, of putting it, is a uh, uh, um, uh, an unworthy competitor to other flagships, but the part that I think a lot of those reviews get wrong is that at the $400 price point, this is an extraordinarily good phone. And I have to say, upgrading from the, I guess, three-year-old Pixel phone, the 3A feels faster than that phone. It's hard to tell with benchmarks, but the software is great. Um, it, it has a wonderful move experience. Um, the If you have a, a recent generation Android phone, or in my case, it was a, an original generation Pixel, you just plug in a two-sided USB-C cable, and it literally sucks all the data off of the old phone, including all the logins. It, it basically recreates the phone on your new phone, which was extraordinary. It took about 40 minutes total to pull all that information across. And I've been using it for the last, uh, well, I guess since Saturday. And the battery is extraordinary. It's crisp. 
it's fast. And I have to say, um, the, the, one of the big benefits of a, a Google phone is that you get what's called the peer Android experience. Uh, Samsung, LG, HTC all put a skin on top of Android that sometimes can add interesting features, but oftentimes bog it down. Whereas the Google phone has just Android as Google and its developers intended it. And it is really something special. Beautiful, beautiful uh, uh, interface, uh, crisp, uh, uh, very snappy. Um, and I guess for lack of a better way of putting an extraordinary battery life gets me through a day, which uh, I'm apparently tough on batteries because I never come even close to the even reviewer tested battery levels, but I'm, I'm really, really happy with it. Um, and I have to say, like, this is, I, I'm hoping that other manufacturers start figuring out a way to, to, to offer mid-range phones um, uh, uh, at a price point that can also bring good hardware and software features. I mean, there, you can buy $100 Android phones from major manufacturers that are okay, not great, but there's usually extraordinary compromises. I feel like there needs to be some phone in the three to $500 range that you know, brings a at least a good experience, if not a premium experience, that doesn't cost a thousand dollars. So um, you can go to T-Mobile now. There's several phones which they're offering four hundred dollar uh, trade-in rebates on. Um, there are other phones that are are offered two hundred and one hundred dollars in exchange. But even if I were paying the twenty five dollars a month that I would need to pay for this to to buy the phone. Um, uh, uh, outright, it would be worth every dime to me. Um, it's 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 been a really extraordinary phone. Well, I have to tell you, I, I'm tempted. So I'm uh, I'm packing the the iPhone Seven Plus, and um, I would probably want to stay with the larger larger screen size. But yep. I was also looking at those T-Mobile deals. Uh, we've got a stereo in our in our car now that has the the Apple Maps, you know, with CarPlay, and I really do like that. I don't I don't think there's an Android equivalent to that, but that's not a game total game changer. Um, I don't know. It's uh, I do. I mean, I'm glad that I went Android for nine months. Um, as we've talked about on the show, I mean, I was using essentially a burner phone, a very low end phone. Um, I absolutely applaud Google for all of the innovation that they're pushing into the marketplace, but especially this idea of having a, a, a pretty awesome phone at a mid range price, right? I am not happy and have not been happy with Apple, you know, pushing this thousand dollar price point. And, and, and so, you know, this, we have a family of five, even though we've got, you know, a couple, uh, 18 and over now. And so, you know, the whole, the whole phone thing, um, anyway, we're just, just having debates about what we're going to do and, and at what point do we upgrade? And I definitely don't want to purchase for myself or anyone else, you know, a freaking thousand dollar flagship phone of any kind, right? And the good thing is you can delay a little bit, you know, how, and, you know, it depends on how long you wait. If you wait a long time, wow, what an upgrade it is, you know, for even technology that's not cutting edge. But, you know, kudos to Google for being able to do this. And I think to, to put an educational lens on this, our students, just as we have the opportunity today, are incre increasingly bringing more and more capable supercomputers into the classroom. Uh, these devices are continuing to really merge with our, with our brains. You know, Ray Kurzweil, who talks about the singularity and, you know, AI surpassing human, you know, capabilities or whatever. One of the most, um, 
prescient and I think insightful things he says is that the size of our neocortex, which is where we do our higher order thinking in our brains, uh, is limited by the size of the human birth canal. So like there was a, there was a size limit there. When we're able to connect to the cloud, and I'm not talking about, you know, in this case, a physical neuro- neurological link, but we're just able to expand the capacity of our brain because we're connected to computers. Um, that, that just opens up so many possibilities. And so, uh, we, we are literally at the very beginning of this age in which everything changes much in the same way as industrialization happened. It's hard to have that kind of a big picture perspective on things because we're living in the middle of it. But I think that Google is continuing to do fantastic work. I'm so thankful for them being very forthright about uh, privacy and making a case, which which I believe, you know, I, I believed it before I.O., that the trade-offs are are worth it and that in giving up data and giving up information, there are so many ways that they are helping to make our lives uh, better and um, uh, allow us to do things. I mean, just recipes alone that I'm able to get, you know, via Google and use on pretty much a weekly basis, uh, right. change the lives of our family as we eat. So anyway, so, really, really positive. And I'm, I'm definitely, I'm, I'm, I'm not, I don't know, man. I mean, I could still, I could, I could think about making a switch myself, especially when you got that trade in capability, right? Yeah. Having a, a decent phone that's going to have a decent trade in value. I do want to mention two other things that, that I found really interesting about the phone. And part of this is the pure Android experience or sometimes called the pixel experience, uh, because it, it, it's what they build on top of core Android to make a pixel phone. One of them has been kind of a, a curiosity head scratcher. And the other one has been just more interesting than anything else. I did opt into a service during the setup of the phone called now playing history, which is a constantly listening, uh, microphone on the phone that listens for songs that are playing in the background of my day and then it provides me a list of those songs you're not going to be able to really see it here but these are songs that uh uh uh, it picked up on a tv show on may 12th i was watching a a, a, an episode of a tv show that that featured a saint patrick's day party and so drunken sailor by the blaggards apparently was in the background of that television show the other day at the supermarket, uh, a Beatles song, a Rolling Stones song, and a Dusty Springfield song, uh, those were captured. And then today I was at a coffee shop in Dillon, Montana, where some kind of coffee shop music, uh, The Village by the Rabel, uh, Gravity by Sarah, something or another, and T-shirt by Birdie, these all sound like coffee shop songs, right? was just played in the background. This wasn't me asking for it. That is an interesting one. I can turn that off, right? That's a, My wife called that creepy, and I agree with her uh, a little bit, but... I can turn off that, uh, I can turn off that uh, particular, uh, feature. But the other thing that's also interesting is that it has Android's new digital well, well-being structure. And, uh, it's a, a software that, that interestingly doesn't kind of jump out and, and say anything to you. I ran into the settings in, in when I was setting up the phone, but basically this allows you to, uh, create, uh, timers on individual apps. And what my, my kind of guilty pleasure app is Instagram. I spent a lot of time on there. I follow an extraordinarily wide variety of people for different reasons, but I set what I thought was probably a maximum amount of time, um, on, on Instagram, which was 15 minutes. And I've hit that easily the last three days, which tells me, Maybe I need to back off the Instagram ever so slightly, but um, that that's another interesting way. And you talk about uh, West privacy and also that Google's taking on some of the perhaps negative side effects that, that are, are very much a um, 
uh, unintended consequences of our digitally always on world. And um, I, I like this a lot. I think that that the software that they're integrating into this platform is, is very interesting and, um, you know, has a... Um, well, certainly an, 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 uh, an empowerment component to it that can help you better use your phone. And, um, yeah, I'm, I'm excited about it. And, you know, the other benefit of, of Pixel phones, for those of you that, that are unfamiliar with the concept, this will get guaranteed two major upgrades to the operating system. So uh, right now, um, Android P or Android Pi is on this phone. Uh, this Later this summer, Android Q, which hasn't been named yet, just known as Q. They usually name it after desserts. And one of the controversy is, is that you have to really dig deep in the alphabet to find a dessert that starts with Q. So we'll see where they go there. Um, and then I would, I would assume that, that Android R next year will also be uh, something this phone gets an update on. And as it turns out, the original Pixel phone, which should have been already kind of timed out of updates, will get Android Q this year, too. So probably for two or three years, I'll be able to get the latest Android software. And that's, you know, one of the ways I think that iOS, you know, beats the snot out of Android. Most phones going back even four or five years get at least some components of the new operating system, whereas Android relies on manufacturers like Samsung and LG and HTC and they're just not as reliable about releasing uh, big Android updates. So I'm really excited to, to get a Pixel phone. I now have the entire Google Kool-Aid collection, um, a Pixel phone. I have a Pixel book, um, which has become my primary computer. In fact, I'm joining you tonight for my Pixel book. But didn't you have and to trade in your original Pixel, though? Oh, oh no, this is the, 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 well, yeah, the Pixel 3a. So, okay, okay. So, oh, okay. so yeah, and then the Pixel book, uh, with my Chrome, or okay. Chrome Pixel book, uh, 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 Chrome OS device. And I don't know, I'm, I'm pretty happy. Like in the same way that I felt a nice, you know, easy buzz with, uh, all the way all iOS devices and Mac OS devices work together. I'm running around with my Android watch. I've got my Pixel 3a phone. I've got my Pixel book. They talk to each other. They work well together. Where's your Google tattoo, my friend? Well, I, I can't show you that on the air. So, um, the uh, you know that's, that's something I'm really excited about. So, um, you know, um, I, I like it that that Wes and I both you know dabble in all the platforms together. I think that that helps give us some perspective here. But right now, I happen to be very steeped in Team Google. There you go. All right. Well, we've got actually a, a lot of other articles. Um, and so maybe we can hit some of these with just, uh, with not quite as much time as we've spent there. Let's do one that's not that great about Google that is so important. Um, the link I put in is from the G Suite admin community post and it's titled, Why Are Brand Accounts Being Removed from G Suite for Education? This past week, we received notification as probably everyone did who is in a G Suite for Education domain that if you have a, quote, branded account, that is going to be discontinued as of July, like July the 10th. And this is my understanding, and I certainly have not done hours and hours of research about this, but basically, uh, if, for instance, you have created a secondary YouTube channel, which many, many schools have done and organizations have done, and then you're able to share that um, that account with others. So like we have multiple accounts at school that, that different people have access to, to be able to, you know, publish into and, and make edits and things like that. Um, those channels, if you do not take action, all that data is going to be deleted and go away on July the 10th. Now the, the work 
workflow or the workaround to this appears to be the following. You need to share that branded account and, and really YouTube, especially for teachers that are flipping. If you've done, if you've done that in your, you know, default created YouTube channel, you're fine. But if you've created a secondary channel, that's the one that's affected. You have to share management rights with a non G Suite for, for education account, a consumer Gmail account. And then you have to transfer the, the ownership of the whole channel to that consumer account. Um, and then that content can, can live on and you don't have to migrate the content, which is what originally I heard about this. I was like, what the heck? That's freaking crazy. You know, because, you know, we might be talking hundreds and hundreds of videos in some cases for, for teachers that have been real uh, prodigious with their production of, of videos. Um, so anyway, heads up to that. Um, this is, uh, like I said, a G Suite admin community post. I've shared a couple tweets about this. I think we need to be very vocal and connected to uh, Google, both via the forums, via Twitter. Uh, I have not heard an explanation for why they are doing this. I suspect it has to do with an overall crackdown on social media accounts uh, in response to the abuse. But I find it hard to imagine that G Suite for education accounts, you know, are somehow accounting for the lion's share or a large proportion of, of abusive accounts and abusive content. So any insights or, or reactions to this, Jason? I, you know, I don't, Wes, but I'm hoping you can explain something to me because I also received this email this week as the, the Google administrator for, for my organization, uh, Montana State Virtual School. And I read through it at least three times and then did some Internet research. Um, and I think I understand this, but it sounds like you might be able to explain this to me a little better. So for the, my benefit and maybe the benefit of, of, of our listeners that don't understand the concept of a brand account, can you explain what a brand account is? So a brand account is designed to be an account that you're going to use for marketing purposes for some kind of, of purpose besides your personal account. So, for instance, um, we have one that we call School Life uh, for our athletics department. We've created a couple different channels that we can live stream into. Oh, and I didn't even mention this. <laughs> they changed the policy. So you have to have a thousand subscribers. And this is something I, I understand perhaps a little more in terms of what happened in Christchurch, New Zealand with live streaming uh, that was on Facebook of, of content. But basically you have to have a thousand subscribers to your account in order to live stream from a mobile device now with YouTube. Boom, no warning, just pop that one on everybody. Um, so we were actually having conversations about, well, does that mean we tell every kid and, and parent and teacher at our school, hey, follow this account so we can live stream from it? Or, you know, what's what's that? Um, so anyway, the branded account, though, is separate. It's something that you title, whatever whatever you want to call it. And um, it's, it's like a secondary channel. And so back in the day, and, and uh, you still have, you know, Google Plus accounts for, for G Suite, uh, accounts, but all the consumer Google Plus has gone away. You know, you would have a Google Plus account because Google is wanting you to use that social network in, in terms of promoting stuff. Um, and I'll drop a link into the show notes as well that talks about branded accounts. And there's actually a very helpful link on this Google support page. And when you're logged into your account, it will show you what branded uh, channels are connected to your account. So those could be shared channels that somebody else has shared with you um, as a manager, or there's some different levels, uh, like in the case of YouTube, or it could be something that, um, you know, you've just created as a secondary account. So that's my understanding of the branded account. See, what's so interesting about that is that um, I'm not even sure if I understand 
like how they would know it's a branded account, right? Like, you know, um, I can understand and I, I, I need to look for sure, uh, to, cause we're, we're, we're looking at this one internally and they did send me a list of, um, list of accounts that have a branded account associated with them. And some of them were students and some of them were faculty. And I think IGI was even one of them as well. But I, I know I, I, the, I read through part of that post West that you shared in, in our show notes and, um, and, and I, I, looking at the different use cases, I can certainly understand where, where the alternatives are not, are not positive at all, right? Like one person said, why does it make any sense for me to go out and make, you know, school name at, you know, underscore YouTube at gmail.com a private account, right? When we should be able to do that using the G Suite for education. It's part of the prospect of that. But yeah, it's a completely bizarre situation. I was originally thinking our workaround would be we would need to create a separate Separate Google account, Gmail account for each of the channels that we have, and then we would have to migrate the content, you know, into that account in order to preserve it. But based on the community posts that I just shared, it sounded like, you know, moving it essentially out of your G Suite, which is crazy, right? Because then you can't control that as an administrator. Um, and then hoping that sometime Google is going to restore access is what they recommended. Um, the page that I'm going to put in the show notes is called Manage Your Brand Account. And under the section, How Brand Account Works, it says, you and others can jointly manage a brand account through your own Google accounts. You won't need a separate username or password. Your account can have multiple owners and managers. And it says you can use certain services with your account like Google Photos or YouTube. You'll be able to communicate, connect, share info with customers and fans from your brand account to manage and see and interact with your content. You can adjust the settings for each service. So, um, yeah, it's we I mean, we've shared access like the, the EdTech SR is a branded account because we didn't create a Gmail account for that. Um, I created a second YouTube account or channel, and now we're sharing it between us. So we're live streaming right now on a consumer Google branded account, as an example, and we're safe. The, the content here is not going away. But, you know, if this was something that we had, um, you know, done through a, a G Suite for education account, um, it would be in jeopardy and we would have to transfer its ownership to a consumer G Gmail account. So we'll put these links in. Uh, if you have more insight into that, please reach out to us, tweet Jason or I, uh, directly, let us know. And I, I really think it's something that the, the G Suite community, I mean, there are, you know, millions of, uh, of students and teachers around the world that use this. And this is really something that I don't, th I don't think there was any precursor to or re really, we really knew what was happening. But as a segue, uh, let's talk a little bit about some, some social media uh, tech correction articles because, you know, it's likely that, I mean, Google doesn't do things rashly or without good reason. Sometimes it's because they're not monetizing something or it's just failing like Google Plus or Google Wave or, you know, different things. But, you know, in this case, I don't know that it had necessarily anything to do with profits. I, I don't know what the motivation for this is. So that's part of the puzzle. And I would expect them to explain themselves. I have not seen a blog post or anything other than the email we received you know, that's really explaining the why of this. Um, so uh, one of the an article, article I put under uh, the tech correction title um, is from The Guardian on May the 5th. Inside Facebook's war room, the battle to protect EU elections. Oh, this is just stunning. Here's the statistic that really caught my eye, and this is 
This is the seventh paragraph of the article. Um, elections are coming up in Europe, okay? And, and so in Dublin, uh, Facebook is setting up this war room. They've got folks that speak all 24 European, uh, you know, lang- European Union languages. They're going to use, of course, AI and algorithms and humans to try and address this. Okay, check out this, this, this paragraph. The scale of the challenge facing Facebook as it tries to clear, quote, bad actors from the system is staggering. Richard Allen, the company's vice president for public policy, said the company took down 2.8 billion fake accounts, billion fake accounts between October 2017 and November 2018. So in a year's time, they had almost 3 billion fake accounts to take down. Now, these are accounts that are being created by automated systems. They're not, they're, you know, some of them are human, but it's, it's automated systems. And so the task of trying to, to take this on is absolutely, uh, you know, staggering and mind-blowing. And so uh, I don't know if it was in this article or another one where there was a statistic about the number of videos, I think it's this one, that were uploaded. No, that was about Christchurch. Um, I don't think I dropped that link in yet. So the United States today, uh, breaking news, dun, 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 uh, just refused to sign a, maybe I didn't tweet it, um, a, a Christchurch, um, it's called the Christchurch Accord. Did you hear about this today? Uh, briefly, yeah. Okay, so basically, right, we had, what, a month ago or something? Um the uh, terrible incident in um, Christchurch, New Zealand, where uh, someone, you know, shot and, and then also live streamed the shooting of uh, many Muslims. And that was uh, uploaded to Facebook Live. Um, so here's an article I'll put in the show notes from the New York, New York magazine. White House refuses to sign a cord to fight online extremism after Christchurch. And um, they said in one of these articles I read they had only had about 200 people view that live. Um, yet, you know, there were millions of copies of this thing uploaded um, within the, the you know 24 hours that followed it. Um, I think this was maybe from the New York Times uh, version. Um, so it is it is staggering to think about the the challenges that are being faced right now by our tech companies and. The Christchurch Accord, the reason the United States refused to sign it is because of free speech. Um, but the reason that so many countries, uh, England, France, I think Australia, you know, New Zealand and many tech companies are behind it. Um, they're saying that Facebook and Google have not uh, been, you know, stepped up to their responsibility in creating these incredibly powerful platforms. They have not taken adequate steps to prevent them from being weaponized and from destroying democracy. And I mentioned on the show a couple of weeks ago, the Carol Codwaller TED talk that she gave recently where the, you know, CEOs of, of Facebook and Google and leadership was there where she said, you, you know, broke democracy and, and you must be held to account for it. So thoughts, Dr. Neifer. Well, I mean, that billion number or the billions number is staggering that that's the number of fake counts created. And one could also assume that they're having to get past what I'm assuming are pretty robust 
protections for automated creations of accounts, right? That if they're getting past the sign up to the point of which they're creating an account that can be deleted then by, you know, X, Y, and Z, uh, uh, enforcers inside the, the social media houses, that's, that's pretty extraordinary stuff. But, you know, I, the, the bottom line is that, yeah, everyone agrees that social media had a significant impact on a variety of elections going back to 2015. And now that's a tool that appears to be so powerful. Um, you know, we, it's, it's going to pop up, right? Like uh, it, there's no way that, that these tools can kind of uninvent the connection that they create. That's the point of the tool. And so that, that's something that we need to be super conscious about. I guess pulling this back to education for, for a moment, I think one of the reasons why we have to be super conscious about this is that this is the reason why media literacy is so important in schools, because we have to absolutely take responsibility for the fact that 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 uh, people are are reading and evaluating information as equal sources, and it it it's not true, right? I mean, the bottom line is is that unless we give people tools to be able to discern what is the truth versus what is something that's clearly intended to be propaganda, then you know, shame on us as a society for not taking that as important. Um, it reminds me of something that uh, is, is pre-social media, but but 25 years ago, um, there was a situation in the town I grew up in, in Montana, where it was actually the first of, of, a, of a long string of, of controversial bond elections, uh, school bond elections, and school levy elections that were happening um, in, in Montana. And um, this happened in a lot of places in the United States. The Midwest was also a location that, that had a lot of issues like this. But um, the quote unquote mainstream media wasn't covering some of the you know, controversial things schools were doing. So people took it upon themselves to take out advertisements in the, in the weekly shopper newspaper, which was called the Consumers Press in the town I grew up in. And people would talk about reading something in the paper about how wasteful schools were and how uh, uh, disingenuous the need uh, uh, stated by school administrators in, in, in my hometown. And bond issues started failing. Uh, levies started failing. Levy elections started uh, failing in, in towns because, uh, you know, there's largely unaccountable um, voices utilizing that media channel. Well, in 2019, you don't even need to pay for an advertisement. You can simply create something online and have it be distributed to extremely wide audiences with relatively uh, little pushback. And if that can impact a local election and divide us and to point out our differences instead of our similarities and not celebrate our differences, that's something that is going to have a profound impact on democracy and then thus the larger of humanity. So, you know, I, I'm sure that, that, that those that listen to the podcast regularly know that, that it's kind of a broken record for the two of us because we're both big fans and proponents of teaching media, media literacy really K through graduate school. It's got to be a part of the discussion in every formal education level, but this is the kind of stuff that's the reason why. Like we have to have uh, a, a more savvy amongst consumers because there's just, you know, even if we end up regulating social media, which is absolutely on the table, uh, even if we regulate it, it doesn't mean that the, this problem is going to go away. And let's not forget, um, I, again, not a political podcast, but, but currently President Trump has been encouraging people that 
have been at the, uh, the, the bad end of some of the internal regulations that have been booted off of social media platforms, YouTube, Facebook, and Twitter, to report that to the White House as being, um, you know, that, that their rights have been somehow been taken away by these private platforms. And, you know, again, a lot of interesting rabbit holes we could go down in regards to that, but that's, that's, that's regulation, folks. That's what regulation is going to look like. It's going to be tough and it's going to be a, a little divisive. And so we can't rely on that, right? We have to be proactive in helping our students, our friends, our neighbors, our family members into questioning sources that they don't have legitimacy to them, triangulating, triangulating them with other sources and remembering what I think the first rule of, of internet searching is that internet searching is not a searching activity, it is a critical thinking activity. And if you're not treating it as such, you can be a victim of the propaganda that is perpetuated by these platforms. Amen. All right, where would you like to go next? We've uh, well, I'd like well, to we've started, started late, so for everyone to know if, if you're watching live, which we don't know that we have anybody in the chat room, uh, we'll, we'll go a few minutes beyond the top of the hour. Sure. So I'd like to talk about a more positive uh, uh, use of social media. And maybe if this is the counterbalance that we're looking for, um, the last two days on National Public Radio, there's been extraordinary stories uh, that uh, I, I think are worth telling and I think are the reason why we need to be careful about being too damning of things like YouTube, Facebook, Twitter. Um, I'm not talking about the extraordinary story of their new theme music, which was released last week, which I have to say I absolutely hate. The new Morning Edition theme music, which I think makes me not young anymore. I think I've now gracefully moved into middle age with that grouchy comment about NPR theme music. But um, uh, NPR released a, a really extraordinary uh, student podcasting contest uh, in 2018. And I had actually thought about maybe uh, uh, trying to get a, a Digital Academy student or two uh, up on, on podcasting and do that. We haven't been able to pull that off yet, although I'm pretty sure we're going to be offering an elective sometime in the next 18 months called Introduction to Podcasting. Um, Wes, if you want to be a guest speaker. But the, uh, the, the winners of the NPR Student Podcast Channel were announced on May 1st. And the high school one is good. It's, it's a historical podcast. But this morning, they covered the middle school winner of uh, the podcasting contest. And it's from um, a, a middle school in the Bronx. And it's a group of, of, of middle school girls. All of them are, are persons of color that created a five-minute podcast on periods, menstruation in essence, right? And talking about the um, the kind of weird way that adults deal with menstruation in their building, the, the awkward uh, 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 wording and conversation and uh, kind of shame that comes along along with the way these girls feel like they're treated in, in dealing with a natural bodily process. And um, my comment here is not related to that particular issue, although that's a rabbit hole that certainly any uh, discussion about school could jump into. It's the fact that these students have been empowered via the podcasting model to release, you know, audio into the wide, wide open to talk about an issue that's so sensitive in their school that, that the teachers they were talking to were uncomfortable, visibly uncomfortable, speaking with the students about what they felt like was was an important thing to them in the way they they were being treated for essentially their bodies and 
I was, I, I was so touched by this this morning. I almost teared up. That's probably the prednisone uh, post transplant. But the uh, this notion that these 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 kids could uh, find a voice, and then now it's not just that it's out there in in in, in the, the the tubes and the wires somewhere. Like it's now featured on you know the largest radio network on earth, and um, you know their story is now an international story. I think is a testament to where you know, we, we have to not just get rid of social media, we have to find ways to, to productively channel students to use it in, in an empowering way. And so if you, need, if you need some good news, right, if the news about social media is getting you down, and uh, I'm, I'm certainly the first to admit that um, it gets me down a little bit, this story is the place to go. Now, Wes, I know long before uh, we were talking about student empowerment via an NPR piece, you've been all about student empowerment through storytelling. So tell me a little bit, wh what does this mean to you in regards to uh, you know, how uh, providing a mechanism for sharing voice can be important? Well, I mean, it reminds me of uh, listening to the Room 208 podcast by Bob Sprankle way back in 2005. Uh, that was featured in the New York Times. I learned about it through David Warlick, who was at the time presenting at EdTech conferences, writing books. I used some of his books for some undergraduate and graduate courses that I uh, taught uh, when I was in Lubbock, Texas. And anyway, the you know, the transformative power there it was absolutely about student voice and it was about, you know, students being able to share their passion, uh, being able to connect with an audience and then being able to use these tools uh, in, in just very transformative ways. Right. And I think we need to recognize that there, that not everybody is on the empowerment train. OK. Or the empowerment float. Uh, this is a really important float or, or advocacy campaign to be on as an educator because I firmly believe that we not only want to empower students with knowledge and skills, but also with the responsibility and the passion to be able to use their knowledge and skills for good in the world, right? As citizens of a local community, a state community, a national and a global community. So I'm excited to, to know about this. I actually just, uh, uh, copied in the tweet, my wife and then Stephanie Hinton, who is a very avid podcaster here in Oklahoma. Uh, we had a great session at our latest EdCamp Oklahoma City, EdCamp OKC, uh, at the end of February on podcasting. In fact, it was probably the best attended session that I went to. And oh, actually, this isn't public yet, but I can uh, announce it because it's going. We're gonna we're gonna have story chasers. Uh, it's kind of the um, coup de gras, uh, probably event of of the organization's life because I think it's going to be coming to an end. Uh, we're gonna have a podcasting conference at the end of July. That's not only gonna be open to educators, but it's gonna be open to anyone. And we are at the cusp of really the the the, the era of podcasting. It's just beginning. We just heard um, Sundar Pichai at Google I.O. last week talk about how the, the text of each podcast is now going to be indexed by Google. So it's not just going to be the title and the meta information that you choose to share or the podcasters choose to share. It's phenomenally exciting. So I appreciate you sharing this, Jason. And, you know, my wife has had a classroom podcast. It's one of those things that sometimes ebbs and flows as far as what there's time for and, and kind of, you know, what she spends time in. But, um, um, I guess I'll, I'll, I can share this now. Our head of school uh, sent the email this week. I'm going to be uh, shifting roles this next uh, year and have an opportunity to really focus on academic technology at our school. Um, so I'm really going to be 
basically a, a media literacy and digital literacy teacher for both of our fifth and sixth grade uh, students. I'll get to teach a, a trimester for every student at our school, and that's going to be a phenomenally wonderful opportunity, I think, to, to lay the foundation for a lot of not only skills, um, but also um, hopefully dispositions and, and ways of thinking about technology. Uh, and then I'm also going to be a pedagogic coach. Um, I like that term. Uh, my official title, I think, is um, innovation and technology integration specialist. Uh, but anyway, that's going to be exciting. And as we think about the kinds of media products that we invite students to create and the things that we want to have in their menu of, of ways they can show what they know, podcasting is a fantastic tool to put in that toolkit. So thank you for sharing that. Yep, absolutely. And again, you know, it's important that we don't drown out uh, the real impacts that social media has. Um, we don't drown out the good news it can bring to our, our kiddos as well. Okay. So let's do a little uh, more good news on the security front. I'll, I'll toss in a couple here. So sure. this is from The Verge today. Uh, our FCC chair, uh, Ajit Pai, proposes new rule that would allow carriers to block robocalls. We've talked about robocalls on the show before. They're at epic levels. It's crazy. You know, it's almost rendered my phone and perhaps yours almost useless for phone calls that come in from folks that are not in your contact book. And, and so um, I think this is good. Uh, you know, lawmakers and those, you know, in some of our federal agencies like the FCC are actually, you know, listening to um, the people. Although, uh, who had the campaign of calling him? Um, Oliver, uh, right? Well, Oliver. Yeah, so maybe maybe he just get, got tired of, of his fans, you know, calling in. Um, so that was from The Verge on May 15th. Um, <laughs> another telecom-related article, this is uh, breaking news from, today, from you know, about an hour ago. Uh, uh, what, <laughs> instead of saying his name, he, is he the 37th president? What's our chief, what's our chief executive? Uh, I was hearing some people. Um, I'll have to Google this really quick. Because we have to remember, right, everything we say can and will be transcribed by Google. Um, 45th. Okay, so he's the 45th. Okay, so we'll just say President 45 um, declares national emergency over telecom threats. And this is from The Guardian today. This is extremely interesting, right? And these are things that we're not probably talking about in school, but yep. our security folks here in the United States, Homeland Security, military, have been warning about the Chinese company Huawei. We've talked on the show about how their CFO was arrested in Canada, facing extradition to the United States for breaking, you know, um, I think, uh, uh, import uh prohibitions, what am I trying to think of? The word that means you can't import stuff into Iran. Um, so this is this is positioning the United States. Basically, there's some laws that allow the president to create enforcement mechanisms when there's a national security risk. And so he signed this executive order and then ordered the Commerce Department within, you know, X hundred days or something to go ahead and have this plan because the 5G rollout is happening globally. And the public fear, which has been shared, is that the Chinese government through this company, which has, you know, was founded by a, a leader in the Chinese military and has very close ties to the Chinese government. If these, if these Chinese 
technology devices are placed all over the United States and the world for 5G networks, then they're going to be able to flip a switch and basically suck all the data in and, and use that as part of the surveillance state of the Chinese government. Now, of course, the irony to that is, have we heard of anyone else flipping a switch and ingesting all the content which flows over their pipes? Yes, of course, that would be the United States via the National Security Agency. Uh, thank you, Edward Snowden, for letting us know about that. So anyway, this is some um, breaking news regarding telecoms, but it's certainly good to hear them you know, taking some uh, efforts to try and address the problem of robocalls. Yep. Well, and then also based on the breaking news, too, I think the real I mean, listening to the, the entire debate in regards to uh, tariffs and um, the, the situation regarding um, the negotiations with the United States and China, I, you know, I, I, I am certainly not naive to think that there couldn't be geopolitical implications to adopting one country's entire, uh, or, or using a country only for the infrastructure, especially a country like China where industry and government share a, an extremely cozy relationship in a way that, that no other country on earth can really demonstrate. Uh, we also had talked a little bit about, I think it was one week or two weeks ago about how uh, China has become kind of an exporter of surveillance technology to other countries. And so you can buy straight up technologies that you can use to uh, 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 create surveillance regimes on your citizens. If you are a, a an emerging uh, economy and, and would like to utilize uh, those uh, clearly uh, overreaching powers uh, to, to kind of monitor your citizens. But at the same time, you know, uh, most electronics are made in China. They're not made in India or Japan or South Korea a lot are made there, but most of them are made in China. And that's a, a factor of globalization that we need to figure out some ways to mitigate harm while understanding that we do live in an extraordinary global economy. So I don't know the answer to this question. Um, simple uh, simple tariffs and, and, and bans and, and, and blockades and such are probably not the answer. But at the same time, um, you know, we are in a situation um, you know, where we have to be mindful of it. So I saw that breaking news too just before we started uh, broadcasting tonight. On the security front as well, uh, ZDNet on May 12th reported hackers are collecting payment details, user passwords from 4,600 sites. And the subtitle is uh, the same hacker group compromises alpaca forms and Picreal to deploy malicious code to thousands of sites. So I maintain a bunch of WordPress sites. You know, articles like this really make me cringe. We probably are all numb now to the, hey, Target got hacked. Hey, uh, Equifax got hacked. You know, your information is out there. Um, this was, was, is sobering because, you know, rather than just an individual website hack, um, they're taking, uh, they're, they're putting their bullseye on open source projects like Alpaca Forms. In this case, they modified JavaScript files. And so it's, it's being able to spread this malicious code, you know, on almost 5,000 different websites. And then it is capturing the data, uh, which, you know, depending upon what you're doing, um, you know, hopefully it's not going to include financial, you know, information. But, uh, man, this, this is the world we're living in, right? We're living in the world of constant battle uh, now on the digital front for our information and uh, also for our minds, you know, and for, for our attention, uh, various reasons for that. 
Um, so Jason, do you, are you a webmaster for many sites now or where, where are your webmaster uh, responsibilities these days? Sure. I've got a couple personal ones I manage. Um, I also work a, a little bit on uh, NCCE's or Northwest Council of Community Education's website. And then of course the ones I run for work, which range in kind of the half dozen range. So uh, it is, it is several and I do use WordPress for almost all of those sites. And so there's a lot of security and, and, and maintenance that's handled by that and and then we utilize some some tools at work that can help uh, manage those multiples of sites. But yeah, it's uh, uh, especially when you have student data that, that's managed on those sites. And, and luckily, we have good vendors that we trust that can help us with that process. But yeah, that that is an extraordinary thing. And it, it also relates to the other article I dropped in. This is from uh, I don't know if it's a straight up Mashable. I think it's also Mashable, Mashable Middle East is the the it's a regional version of Mashable. But it's a pretty interesting article about something we've talked about quite a few times in the podcast about the cyber threat that Internet of Things devices provides. In the same way, poorly locked down websites. Uh, you can be a real risk for taking personal data. Uh, the same is true of poorly secured Internet of Things devices that are on your network. All it takes is for one of those devices that either has a old, uh, 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 easily hackable firmware or a poor password, or if you use the standard password for that, and it can really expose your entire network. And what I keep thinking about in regards to this is, um, you know, having been a former network rebel myself, someone that probably caused a little bit of pain for whoever was running um, the computers and networking in the, the two buildings I taught in as classroom teacher, um, you know, be super conscious about setting up, um, you know, kind of a, a gray market devices in your school network. Like if you decide to create your own little private network to run your uh, IoT switch or perhaps a, a, an Alexa um, or other uh, a device that has not been approved of and is ultimately managed by your uh, network admin, you're essentially providing a hole that a hacker could then get into your internal network on. And, you know, I think we're in better shape than we were 15 years ago. The, one of the buildings I taught in, people regularly left folders available online that had student data in them that just a search through the network settings would be able to get to that. I think we've locked a lot of that down in most schools. But don't be the person that that, that creates a, an easily hackable hole in the school of which you work. Yeah. And on that note, um, you know, I'm going to be shifting roles from from director of technology. But one of the things that I'm uh, very proud and happy that we're doing, and I wonder how many schools have already made this switch, um, is, you know, thoroughly segmenting our network. We had, had been segmented somewhat, but, you know, really segmenting the network so that, you know, somebody can't just walk in, a student or whoever, you know, plug Jack into the network and then have access to the the vast amount of of operations level equipment from security cameras to thermostats to uh HVAC control systems to you know gates doors access control um there's there's all sorts of things that we run at school and so if your school if you're not having conversations as a school leader about the ways in which you have a defense in depth approach to security threats because frequently the threat can be from inside. It's not just from the outside. It is from the outside. And we have firewalls and, and other things that are trying to protect us from outside threats. But there are threats that happen from the inside. And those can be, you know, uh, clever, clever kids that think they want to, you know, play around and mess around and see what they can do. Um, try to get into your student information system. 
you know, access different kinds of files. Uh, it's very, very important that the design of our networks and our computer systems continues to evolve and grow with the times. And I've uh, enjoyed being able to learn a lot about that as a technology director. I will not lie to you. I am also very excited to pass the torch of responsibility for all of that to someone else because it is quite a burden to think about, you know, all the things that we're responsible for and the ways in which we're trying to protect this very complex network, which is more and more, you know, a cornerstone of our day, no matter what kind of hat we wear at the school. So anyway, that is... That is an eye opener. And as much as I would like, I mean, I'd love to have, I will have the Google assistant in my classroom, right? Because I'll have my phone, whether it's my iPhone with my iOS version of it, or I make the jump to the, the pixel three, a plus or whatever. Um, but yeah, we want to be careful and wary and certainly be coordinating with our uh, friends in the technology department when we're going to be plugging something in and making sure that we're not going to either put our network at risk or, you know, possibly, wreak some kind of havoc on the network, which can happen from time to time when people yep. even even plug in, uh, you know, a shorted out Ethernet cord. I mean, it's crazy how, man, this is scary, how, how easy it is to wreak havoc on a network, particularly one that's not segmented well um, with, you know, basic kinds of things like Ethernet cables. And there's all sorts of uh, little toys we learned. I went to a cyber uh, cybersecurity um day that was a sponsored by the, the Cozen affiliate here in Oklahoma City a couple of weeks ago. And the security officer from the University of Tulsa presented both in the morning and the afternoon. And he had a bag of tricks, man, that just totally blew your mind. In fact, Saturday morning, my wife and I were at our favorite uh, little Metro diner. And the guy was like, I'll just be right back when I run this card. And I said, no, I, you just need to run that right here, you know, because it's about 20 or $30 on Amazon to buy a skimmer. And you can just put all the cards you want through it. And there have been plenty of cases of folks at restaurants. Uh, that's what they're paid to do. They just take the credit cards and they skim them and they're paid a fee. And all those cards may or may not be used immediately. But um that was a shocker for me. And that's, you know, just one example where my behavior has changed as a result of my growing awareness about how people can exploit the, uh, the digital devices, numbers, and uh, tools that we have at our, at our disposal. Yep. Absolutely true. All right. Now you don't have a geek of the week, sir. Do you need to hunt for one? Uh, uh, let me yeah, go I was going to say, we just hit the hour, didn't we? I yeah. remember I was going to do that. Let me talk about yours. I will. Well, let me do one more article and then, then we'll do some uh, geeks of the week. Um, so um, let's see. This uh, San Francisco one is, is, is important. So the business insider reports today as the headline, uh, San Francisco becomes uh that's a that's a poor title. San Francisco becomes the first U.S. city to ban the use of facial recognition software by the police. And that's I think that's actually a misnomer, because as I read the article, it doesn't it doesn't ban it. What it does is it requires city departments to establish use policies and obtain board approval for surveillance technology they want to purchase or they're using. I mean, that is a serious misrepresentation in terms of, of the article. So they're not you know, going to deny police the ability to do it. But what they are going to do is try to have that out in public and say that, you know, this needs to be discussed and viewed. It's interesting to me that in the case of personal surveillance technologies, i.e., 
you know, gathering information about you when you put in your phone number, or your email address, when you're at the local uh, corner drugstore, you know, uh, purchasing something um, that, you know, that information is all sold. Those companies would really like that to, to be kind of more hidden because consumers get more uncomfortable the more they know about how data is being collected about them and used. And similarly, with the rise of the surveillance state, um, when we're talking about, you know, government and, and uh, police and security forces, there's also... Uh, a desire on their part in many cases to kind of keep that quiet, um, you know, because the more that criminals know, um, you know, that might, it's, it's a cat and mouse game. So anyway, interesting that San Francisco is taking some steps to um, raise awareness about what's being done and try to provide some transparency for that. Um, one of the things to also note that's really important that my son reminded me of um, is how poorly facial recognition can perform uh, depending upon the darkness of your skin um, and, you know, different ethnicities and things like that. And and we need to attend to that stuff. Right. So if if my if uh, uh, people of color are going to be disproportionately affected by uh, false positives, hey, that's actually a pretty big deal and maybe a reason to, you know, put the brakes on or insist on a higher level of, of accuracy before, you know, things are deployed, especially if they're going to be, you know, utilized to do things like arrest people or, you know, get, you know put information into somebody's file um, that you may or may not have access to. All right. So it is time for Geek of the Week. And uh, I've got a couple. I already told you about my new professional role. That was one of them. Uh, learned about this today. Uh, we have a Wednesday morning uh, uh, Eucharist service at our at our chapel. We've got a number of, of older adults that come and alumni. And uh, one of them was talking about this organization I'd never heard of before. It's called Better Angels Depolarize America. And their Twitter is Better Angels USA. And basically the organization is seeking to find ways to uh, promote dialogue in our communities, bring us together, um, enable us to be able to talk with people who may not share our political views and essentially address polarization through dialogue. And I thought that was pretty fascinating. And I'm going to look into that organization a little bit more. And then the other one uh, was shared by um, uh, Sean Beard, who is a Tulsa area educator, actually at well, I follow on, on Twitter. I saw him last at that cybersecurity summit. Uh, but it's ISTE certification focused on pedagogy based on the ISTE standards. Become ISTE certified. And so there's workshops that you can take. And I think some, uh, well, actually, you can do this through the Northwest Council um, for Computer Education, Jason. So yeah. you are probably very aware of this. I had not. I am very aware of it, and I'm excited about it. I, I, uh, it, it, it is. I would say it is a premiumly priced product, but I do like the notion that ISTE is getting into uh, a means of of providing training for teachers that can then show a, a a potential district or your current district that you're steeped in in advanced pedagogy utilizing technology. Because I do think we we have a uh, a, a real lack of, of ways of demonstrating that content, and I like this notion that education is kind of borrowing from from technology, uh, the technology industry of, of, of certifications, right? Like it's it, you get to a point where you can't get up on the scale anymore. You don't want to get additional degrees. Uh, Wes and I have terminal degrees, so getting additional degrees would really just be a lot of heartache for us now. But if I wanted to get a new specific skill and show that off, I I think a, a, a certification like this is a really great idea. So good on ISTE. And if you're interested in finding more about that from NCCE, you can go to uh, ncc.org and go to professional learning. Awesome. All right. What you got for us this week? Well, I'd like to share an app that is an important part of my travel strategy. I, I get a lot of questions. It's not like I'm the super 
super cheap traveler because, to be honest, I like a, a, a good hotel, and I, I don't like to sit in the back of an airplane, so I'm not willing to sit into, a, you know, like a chicken coop seat on an airplane uh, to Europe, uh, so I, I do buy up occasionally to get a better seat. But one of the ways I do travel inexpensively is to monitor flights and try to, to strike when the low-priced iron is hot. And one of the ways I do that is a great app that's available on iOS and Android called Hopper. Uh, you can go to hopper.com and get a link sent to you, and you can put in the days that you want to travel and some parameters of maybe which airlines you prefer or if you're okay with what's called a basic fare, which is a kind of a new commercial phenomenon in flight, and then oftentimes tell you that it's at a low price right now that based on our monitoring of this flight will not get lower, or the price is high right now and you should wait because it will likely become lower at some point. And so uh, as an example of this, we had intended on maybe uh, uh, going to uh, uh, Sweden for a week in early June. Our work schedules don't allow for it, but starting in January, we had been monitoring that flight, and at one point, that flight is now $1,400. I just looked on Hopper to, to see that. At one point, we had uh, spotted a flight for $720 uh, that would have been a pretty decent flight. And in fact, we could spend just a little bit more to end up in premium economy seats uh, for that flight. So if you're interested in, in bargain traveling, maybe playing uh, the kind of airline price dice a little bit, hopper.com to get that on iOS or Android. Awesome. Well, we want to thank everybody for tuning in. Uh, please let us know if you listen to the show. Uh, all of our show notes are available at edtechsr.com slash links. And we are generally here on Wednesday nights at 9 p.m. Uh, Central Time, 8 p.m. Mountain. And we were a little delayed tonight. And periodically we will have to make a change. And we always do notifications on our Twitter channel, which is edtechsr. So we appreciate the time, encourage you to stay savvy and stay safe, and remember that you may be the best security advisor that someone in your life is going to have to try and stay safe, protect uh, their personal information, their data, um, but also you may be one of the most important advocates for the positive side of technology and social media. And as we've talked about on the show, we don't want to lose sight of that. So have a great week. Thank you.